On this Mission Sunday, I felt a spirit led to step away from 1 Timothy and to draw our attention to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. So this morning, I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, and turn to that sacred text, Matthew chapter 28. I'll begin reading at verse 16. I'll conclude at verse 20. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Please hear the word of the Lord. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The words of Christ that I just read for you are commonly called the Great Commission. These were the final words of Jesus spoken after his resurrection, but before his glorious ascension into the heavens. This mandate from the Messiah was not given merely to the 11 rednecks that we call disciples who gathered with him on the top of that mountain. No, this Great Commission has been given to all of Christ's followers in every age of every generation in every society. This is a mandate from our great, massive, majestic Messiah. You do realize that if you've been saved, you've been saved to be sent. You've been saved by Jesus to be sent for Jesus to make much of our glorious Jesus Christ. You have been saved in order to be sent. As I think about these words of Christ, I, I, I come across this title for this message, Living Sent on His Mission. Living Sent on His Mission. The Great Commission can be broken down into three components. There are two everlasting characteristics of Christ that bracket one eternal command of our Lord. It's to those three parts that I want us to draw our attention this morning. In verse 18, there is an everlasting characteristic of Christ. He has sovereign power. In verse 20, Jesus brackets the sovereign power with the second eternal characteristic of Christ, and it is his spectacular presence. And sandwiched in between those two characteristics is one command of our Lord. Make disciples of all nations. Jesus begins by reminding us of his sovereign power. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus possesses all authority. Not just some authority. Not just a little bit of authority. Not even the majority of authority, he possesses all authority. To say that Jesus has been given all authority is to say that Jesus has authority over life and death, 
over heaven and earth, over angels and demons. Jesus has authority over your past, your present, and your future. Jesus has authority over every bird of the air, every fish of the sea, every creature that crawls or walks upon the land. Jesus has authority over every wind and wave. He has authority over every storm and star. He has authority over every sickness and every cancer. Jesus has all authority. He has all authority over every government, over every nation, over every culture, over every society, Jesus has all authority over every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every marriage, every family, every house, every person living in the city, every person living in the countryside. Jesus has all authority. There's no authority outside the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds his disciples, I'm sending you because I have sovereign power. And that power that I have, it is in that power that I I send you. It is that power of Jesus, his great authority. It is by his authority that we are saved. It is by that authority that we are sent. So Jesus begins by telling us, reminding us that he has sovereign power. But then in verse 20, he kind of brackets that with the reminder that he has spectacular presence. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The presence of Jesus is unending. The presence of Jesus is unbroken. There's never a time in your life, believer, when you are outside the presence of Christ. He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's one of the great promises of the Bible. And it's spoken over and over from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you read that statement, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, at first read, it sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it? Jesus will be with us to the very end of the age. Then what? What's going to happen after the end of the age? Is he going to abandon us at that point? Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, but then what happens? And that phrase that oftentimes is rendered the end of the age, literally in the ancient text, is the completion of eternity. Now elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, that phrase completion of eternity is given in reference to the second coming of Christ. So I think what Jesus is reminding his disciples is I am with you to the second coming and beyond. I am with you until I come and get you. And when I come and get you, I'll be with you to the very end. To I will never have a moment when I'm not with you. So if you stop and think about the spectacular presence of Christ, for us believers, we will never live one nanosecond in this world or the one to come outside of his presence. He will be with us until he comes and gets us. And when he comes and gets us, we'll be with him for all of eternity. Until everything is completed, till everything is consummated, till everything, till his kingdom comes, we will be with him forever and forever. So we have this great promise, right, of his spectacular presence in every high and every low, every mountaintop and every valley, in every moment of pleasure and pain, in every second of faithfulness and even foolishness, 
in, in every moment when we are obedient to Christ and even when we are disobedient to Christ, our disobedience does not disqualify us from the very presence of Christ. So Jesus reminds his disciples of two everlasting, glorious characteristics of our Lord. He has sovereign power and he has spectacular presence. His power, his presence saves you. His power, his presence sends you. When you come to verse 19, you hear and read that, that glorious command. There, there's one command in verse 19. And it's not always the command that you think it is. Most of the time people come to the Great Commission and they think the command is go. Therefore, go. But literally, grammatically, as it's written, there is one imperative and there's three participles. And in just this moment, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, you say tomato, I say tomato. I have no idea what you just said and it really doesn't matter to me. I don't even know if I care. I mean, I don't care about imperatives and participles. This is not English class. This is church. You're right. It is church. But if we understand how Jesus said what he said, it'll make so much more sense. There is one imperative and three participles. The one imperative tells us what to do. The participles tell us how we're going to get it done. The one imperative, the one command, make disciples of all the nations. That's the imperative. That's the command. That, that, that's the marching order. For God's followers, this is what we're all about. We are to be consumed with making disciples of all the nations. That phrase, all the nations, literally means all the peoples. All the peoples on the planet. Jesus is telling these 11 disciples, but not just them, but all of us. He's saying to them in this moment in the first century, look, you guys are going to make disciples of the nations. Can you imagine with me what an overwhelming, stressful moment that must have been for these guys? How are we supposed to make disciples of all the nations, all the peoples? Those guys living in the first century, they were very limited in their communication, their technology, and their transportation. They could only go so far. They only had this limited amount of technology. How were they going to do that? Remember. You are saved to be sent, and when you are sent, you are not sent in your power, but his power. You're not sent with your presence, but his presence. You are sent with his sovereign power, and you're sent with his spectacular presence. So you go in the grace of Christ. You go not in your love, but his love. You go in his power, not your power. You go in his presence, not your presence. You go because Jesus has commanded us to go. He's equipped us to go. He has sent us so that we might go and make disciples. Now, as daunting as it must have been for those 11 disciples... Let's stop and think about that for us today. The command is still the same. Go make disciples of all the nations. We got nearly 8 billion people who are our neighbors on planet Earth. 8 billion. And at best count, only about 31% of them, which is equivalent to 2.4 billion, claim to be Christian. Now, you may think to yourself, but wait a minute, Pastor, 
I don't think there are 2.4 billion Christians on planet Earth. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe it's even more daunting than I realized. Maybe it's more than six out of 10 who don't know the name of Christ. But our mandate is to go and make disciples of all the nations, all the peoples. It's overwhelming whether you live in the first century or the 21st century. Even though our communication, our technology, our transportation, it, it's more elaborate than it was in the first century, it's still an overwhelming task, is it not? But can I remind you, just what Jesus said to them, he says to us, you don't go in your power, you go in my power. You don't go in your presence, you go in my presence. I've equipped you to save you and to send you. So when we go make disciples, we know that we're accompanied by his power and his presence. Now, those participles. Most of the time a participle ends in I-N-G. So in this case, the three participles would be going and baptizing and teaching. Those three participles tell us how we're going to get it done. The three participles tell us something about when we make disciples. It tells us something about what we make as disciples. And it tells us how we make those disciples. So when are we to make disciples? And the answer, as you are going. Going where? Going everywhere. As you're going to the grocery store, as you're going to the gas station, as you're going home, as you're going to church, as you're going to work, as you're going to school, as you're going to the ball field, as you're going on vacation, as you're going to conferences. And yes, as you are going on the 24 mission trips in 2024, as you go, you make disciples. So when do we do this? Always, all the time, on the go. As we are going, our overwhelming, consuming objective is to make disciples of all the nations. We want to know Jesus personally and make him known passionately. We want to leverage everything that we have, all of our schooling, all of our education, all of our resources, all of our money, all of our experiences. We want to leverage everything we have for this ultimate purpose of making disciples. And when do we make disciples? As you go. As you are going about life, as you are living, you go and make disciples. Now, we've said for years that one of the great tools God uses to help fashion us into the disciples he wants us to be is for when we go on a short-term mission trip. And the reason is because when you're on that trip, you go for a singular purpose. I mean, there may be multiple reasons of why you go to a particular place, a particular time, for a particular amount of money, but ultimately, the overarching purpose of you going on any of our mission trips is to make disciples, to make much of Jesus. And then what happens when we come back home? Oh, we get distracted, don't we? We get overwhelmed with all the demands of life. And as we are going, we sometimes forget to make disciples. See, we just think that one of our short-term mission trips will be just the tool that God needs and uses to help fashion you into the disciple he wants you to be. Because when you go on that short-term trip, it, it, it changes your mentality. It changes how you think. It changes how you look at your life, at other people's lives, at your resources that God has given you. And you think, you know what? If I can do this in Colorado or New York City or Selma or Honduras or Ireland or England, if I can make disciples in those places, then surely I can make disciples across the street, uptown, downtown, in the middle of town. I can do it here if I can do it there. And the reason you can do it there is because you're thinking about it. 
that as you go, you make disciples. So Jesus reminds his disciples that when are we supposed to make disciples? As we are going. But what kind of disciple are we supposed to make? Can I remind you of the words of John MacArthur? John MacArthur says a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. A disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. It's a person who wants to, for all his or her life, that individual wants to make much of Jesus, wants to know more about Jesus, wants to be shaped by Jesus, wants Jesus who lives on the inside to stick out of them in their hands and their habits. And, and, and they want Jesus to direct their thoughts and their steps and their attitudes and their actions. It's a lifelong believing learner of Christ. When you go and make a disciple, you introduce somebody to Jesus, don't you? I mean, first and foremost, you say, hey, can I tell you about my best friend, Jesus? The one who has touched me and changed me. The one who has, who has turned my life inside out. And you, you introduce them to Jesus. And when Jesus saves them, and it's always initiated by Christ, and when he saves them, he transforms them, doesn't he? Salvation from the inside out. When somebody is saved, it is very supernatural. It's very miraculous. The scripture tells us that we are dead in our sin and Jesus comes and he awakens inside of us a hunger and a desire for him. And he awakens the knowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And the only sufficient Savior is the Lord Jesus, who came some 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, died on a criminal's cross as your substitute and mine. He was taken off that cross when he was dead. He was placed to a borrowed grave. They rolled a massive stone in front of it. On the third day, Jesus got up. And he makes all the difference in the world. When we make a disciple, we introduce somebody to Jesus. And that salvation... It's very personal, right? But the salvation of Christ, though it may be personal, is never to be private. Your salvation is personal, but it's never private. So what Jesus does on the inside, inwardly, you outwardly display. And one of the first ways that you outwardly display your allegiance to Christ is through baptism. Now, as Baptists, we love that, don't we? I mean, it's right there in the middle of the Great Commission. I mean, we're baptizing people. We're getting them all wet. Baptismo means to dunk. It means to immerse. We're really holding them down, and Jesus is washing away their sins, right? I mean, we, we love that. But we understand that baptism does not save. We are not baptized for salvation. We are baptized from salvation. It's the outward expression of an inward reality in our life. What God has done to us on the inside, outwardly, we declare Jesus is Lord. So we baptize. It's the evidence that people are saved, that they long to be a lifelong follower of Christ. And Jesus says you baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't baptize in the names, plural, of Father, Son, and Spirit because we are not polytheistic. We are monotheistic. We believe there is one God. And this one God shows himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when we are baptized, we are dying to ourself. And we're being raised to walk in newness of life. What a beautiful picture. 
What a glorious picture of the Trinity. What a glorious picture of what God does for us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our sin was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more and we've been raised to walk a brand new life. So we're baptized. When, when, we, when we go about making disciples of all nations, we are introducing them to Jesus. And then we're watching the fruit of their life of following Christ. And one of the initial moments uh, after they are saved, and they, they long to show that through baptism. In the, New, in the New Testament church, baptism usually happened about once a year on Easter Sunday. And if what I've read is correct, there were times that ancient saints, they would come and walk into the water and as a way of showing that they were dying to self and dying to sin, they would spit in the darkness. Then they would turn around and be baptized. This usually happened at a sunrise service on Easter Sunday morning. Imagine the, the visual of this. That when they went into the water, they would spit into the darkness as if to say, I am spitting in the face of Satan. He no longer has mastery. He no longer has control of my life. My allegiance is to the Lord. And they were buried with Christ. And then they were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. What a beautiful picture of baptism. That baptism, that's, that's the kind of disciple that we are to make and replicate. One who is allegiant to the Lord, dying to self on a regular basis, a daily basis, and living for the Lord. So as we go, we are baptizing and teaching. Jesus did not say, teaching them everything I've commanded you. He says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Apparently, obedience is taught and not caught. That we have to teach people, yes, what the commands are, but how to obey them. How to apply it to our life. You know, I never had to teach my children how to sin. But I did have to teach them how to live right. Never had to teach my children how to say no to me. That was kind of one of the first words they learned. I tell them to do something, they look at me, no. I didn't have to teach them how to say no. I had to teach them the value of saying yes to the instruction of their father. In a very similar way, as a church, we are to teach disciples to obey. We are to teach them the benefit and the value of following the Lord and living life the way he describes. We are to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. There is a very fundamental part of the church that's a teaching component of the church, which, by the way, makes this position of executive pastor who, yes, overlooks the day-to-day -day operations of the church and, yes, gives some financial oversight to our budget, but the third component of helping give some strategic leadership to the teaching component to our preschoolers and our children and our students and our young adults and our middle-aged adults and our senior adults. I mean, this position is so valuable because if we don't teach effectively, if we don't teach accurately, who will? The writer of the Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So you and I are called to be disciples who make disciples. And part of that is that we understand it's as we are going. 
we are baptizing and we are teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is a mandate that's been given to the church. If the church doesn't do it, no one else will. This great commission was not given to the government because the government won't do it. This great commission was not given to any particular nation because there's not a particular nation that will do it. This great commission was not given to any other institution because there's no other institution on planet earth that will fulfill the great commission. The great commission was given to the church because it's only the church that can fulfill this commission of Christ. It's only the church that goes out in his power and his presence. It's only the church that proclaims the saving plan of God Almighty. And this saving plan has never changed. It's the heartbeat of God from eternity past to eternity future. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord says to Father Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's the Apostle Paul that reminds us that the you is a singular seed. It's one offspring. It's Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus that people can be blessed. It is only through Jesus that people can be saved. It is only because of Jesus that people can be sent on his mission. But this heartbeat continued in the life of Jesus. Jesus says in that famous verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the very heartbeat of God. If you are saved, you've been saved to be sent. It is not a question of will I go somewhere and share the good news of the gospel. The question is always not will I go, but where will I go? I tell every discovery class, I don't care where you go. Just go somewhere with the gospel. Go across the street. Go uptown. Go downtown. Go across town. Go to another city. Go to another state. Go to another country. Go somewhere. You can't go everywhere, but you can't go somewhere. You can't do everything, but you can do some things. So go and proclaim the good news. This is why you were made. This is why you were created. You were created to know Christ personally and to make him known passionately. That's why you were made. That's why you were wired. That's why you were put together like this. That's why you were saved. So all to Jesus I surrender. And all to him I freely give. And I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Easy words to sing, difficult to live. But God has called us not to be committed to Christ. He's called us to surrender to Christ. You can't say the word surrender without throwing up your hands and say, God, I surrender unto you. I relinquish my commitment. I relinquish my rights. I relinquish my control. I am yours. Jesus, you own me. Jesus, you've wrecked me. Jesus, you've messed me up. Jesus, you turned me inside out. Jesus, you have saved me and you have sent me for your glory. This morning, if you're not a Christian, today can be the day of your salvation. The moment we start singing a song, I invite you to come and say, I need to surrender to this Jesus. If you're here today and you have surrendered to Christ, 
But maybe you think to yourself, you know, I knew today was Mission Sunday. I knew they make a big deal about missions. I didn't know about the magazine. The magazine is pretty cool. But I, 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 just, I just, look, this is not, it's not me. It's not my thing. I just don't go anywhere. Well, maybe after today you need to rethink that. And maybe we haven't listed the place you want to go in 24. But where are you going to go? You can't go across the street. You can't go across the globe. I don't care where you go, but just go somewhere with the gospel. Because all to Jesus, we surrender. And all to him, all to him, we freely give. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this moment of invitation. We pray that you'll move and we'll respond in obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.